This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I didn't know that he was going to slap my hand away. And I didn't know that I was going to feel really angry about him slapping my hand away. And that, that would then become my impulse for asking Rhaenyra for her favor. You don't know how you're going to be made to feel until you're in that scene with that person. And it's happening. Welcome to another episode of West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Lauren Morgan. And Lauren, I, I just realized we're at the halfway point for season one of House of the Dragon. How are we feeling at this point? That's kind of bananas. It, it, I mean, it feels like it just started, but at least we've got five more episodes to go. So we're only going up from here or more chaotic and dangerous and bloody. So well, I can't wait to unpack it all with you. And this week, we have a special guest joining us, Mike Walsh, a staff writer at Nerdist. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we're going to be digging into all things episode five of House of the Dragon. But first, I wanted to chat with you both about something that's kind of been making the rounds in the news this past week. House of the Dragon director Greg Yutanis and hairstylist and makeup artist Tania Cooper shared images of some deleted scenes from the show. They involved one sequence showing the aftermath of Viserys announcing his engagement to Allison and the blow up between these two girls. And the other scene involved Rhaenyra helping Allison into her wedding dress. Who knows, there might have been even more scenes that we haven't seen in the final cut. These images have since been scrubbed from social media, understandably. I'm sure HBO was all over that when they saw it come out. But some folks have been saying, you know, these would have been really nice to have on the show. What do we think? Does House of the Dragon, especially these earlier episodes, work better with or without them, in your opinion? Mike, as our special guest, I'm going to kick things off with you. How do you feel about it? You know, I don't think the show suffered from not having them, but I think they definitely would have been nice to see. I haven't minded the time jumps. I think that they've sort of let our imaginations fill in some of those gaps. But I really love these heavily laden scenes where their personalities and their relationships are just seeping through them as much as they try not to. So yeah, it would have been a lot of fun to see. And if I wish they had found a way to do it, but I don't think it shows worse for having skipped it. I just think it could have been a little bit better, if that makes sense. Yeah. And Lauren, what about you? I actually would have really liked to see them because I think that's like, there was kind of that big jump between the two where it's like he announces to, they, they're getting married. And then in the next episode, they've been married for a couple of years. There's already a baby Aegon. And I just feel like that sort of that, that's, super visceral reaction because you can kind of see like Renara is like shouting at Allison and Allison looks like she's in tears and the whole entire thing. I don't know if we need to see the wedding scene, but I really would have liked to see that fight between the two of them. The wedding scenes are always, I mean, well, we're going to talk about a wedding scene. Uh, <laughs> so this one was at least, seems like a non-eventful wedding, but I would have really liked to see the fight scene. What about you, Nick? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of in between both of your perspectives on this. I I mean, listen, it's hard. They have a lot of material to get through in this very first season. And as we know from Fire and Blood, these events 
like transpire over the course of years. So it's not like they have an easy linear narrative progression on their hands. That said, Ryan and Miguel, Ryan Condal, Miguel Sapochnik, the two showrunners, they were pretty clear about their intention about starting this show with young Allison, young Rhaenyra. And it was all about understanding their friendship and why they fell out to explain why they're kind of at odds as adults and this whole civil war is happening. And to that regard, I really... I, I would have loved to spend as much time as possible really getting into the specificities of these young girls, like as friends. And because I think the show, I think, could have used a little bit more to explain like why specifically they fell out. Like, I think I said this before in a previous podcast, but I feel like some of it is just kind of explaining what's going on. But like, I don't, I as a viewer don't necessarily feel it. I don't know how both of you guys feel about that, that like the explaining versus actually having an emotional investment in these relationships. Yeah, I, I can see definitely there there's that because I think there were been some scenes where it's like, you're supposed to feel more of an emotional punch. And you're like, oh, that's curious. And it's sort of like, you know, emotionally, you're not quite being drawn in the way that you probably should be. So I I do think that's a fair criticism. What about you, Mike? How do you feel about that? I think if nothing else, it would have been really nice to see the costumes. Those photos look great. And I don't know if this is heresy to say, but I feel like the show so far looks better than Game of Thrones did. Which I guess makes sense. You know, they they learned a lot over all those seasons of making it. But those stills, those were really good looking photos. And I can only imagine how good the scenes looked. So there's that part of me that just misses it purely from a selfish viewpoint of I want to see the production quality. I felt so bad for the costume designer having to design a whole wedding dress and crafting a whole wedding dress. And those are usually sort of like the big sort of pinnacle showy things and they didn't even get to see it. Like, you know, and even that hairstyle that they had sort of conjured up for her. I was just like, oh, that's a lot of work. And you're not getting to like getting that one cut must have hurt. So I could see why they were sharing it on social media because I would be like, would you like to see my work here? Nobody else got to see it, but I still have hopes that we will probably see these scenes in like some deleted DVD or Blu-ray release or 4K release or something of that sort. The wigs we were deprived of (laughs) (laughs) with these deleted sequences. (laughs) Heaven forbid, but we get quite a wig in this one. So, you know. So let's start digging into this because we have another wedding sequence that was not deleted in the show. So for anyone listening at home, we're going to be digging into episode five of House of the Dragon. Our rules for this remain the same. Our first portion of the podcast is just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective, meaning anything that has already aired on the series up to this point, including in episode five, as well as anything that's been mentioned in the press is fair game to talk about. Then we'll be switching it up a bit later to talk about House of the Dragon as it relates to George R.R. Martin's books and where this is all taking us. So fair warning to anyone who wants to avoid as much of the bigger picture details as possible. And then the final portion of the podcast will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we are joined by Fabian Frankel, who plays Sir Kristen Cole. Now, to kick things off, Mike, what are your kind of general impressions about episode five? I was genuinely surprised by how much happened. There, every episode has been full of, of important events and important characterization, but this one still caught me off guard because they really condensed a lot. Uh, I know we don't want to spoil necessarily that later, but there was just so many things that happened over such a long period of time in the book that happened very, very close to one another. And 
that was that made for an exciting episode, but it, it definitely caught me off guard. Lauren, what are your thoughts? First impressions? Yeah, it was interesting because I was rereading parts of Fire and Blood last night just to sort of prep for the podcast. And it was interesting because there uh, I'll try not to talk about it because we're not in the book section yet. But there, it was there was some stuff that was done a little bit out of order from what it was in the book. But yeah, it was an action packed episode. And, and, you know, and true to Game of Thrones forms, we do not, you know, form, we do not get out of this wedding without something horrible, horrible and bloody happening. So it was kind of an interesting, like, I mean, I like going to Driftmark and seeing Corliss's castle high tide. I believe that's what it's called and all of that kind of stuff. It was an action packed episode and it kind of built off of what happened in episode four in terms of the relationship between Christian and Renera really went kind of kaboom in this one. And this is where you know, the seeds of the dance with the dragons are really going to start coming into play. Yeah, I mean, Mike, you're so right. There was so much going on in this episode. And even in the face of all that, the first thing that I always think about when I think about episode five is Lady Rhea of House Royce. She is the current uh, wife of Prince Damon Targaryen at the start of this show. And I just kept thinking, I mean, she's played by actress Rachel Redford, who appeared in The Riot Club and Testament of Youth. And I kept thinking to myself, there is no way, no reality where a sheep of the veil is more attractive to Prince Damon than <laughs> Lady Rhea. I know. When I, when I saw her, I was like, she's perfectly attractive, Damon. What are you complaining about? Like, they obviously seem to detest each other. So I was like, how did this marriage come about? Did this just start animo- like with animosity completely or did it? You know, did it just go downhill after that? But I don't know what you think, Mike. Well, it's funny. It's in the great tradition of the world of ice and fire. If you read that compendium book, it'll have things like, he had seven mistresses and this one was the ugliest. And then you look at the drawings and they are the, the seventh most gorgeous people you've ever seen in your life. The threshold for for being ugly or being unattractive in Westeros is ridiculous. It's like anybody who's, a, if you're a 9.7, you are the ugliest person anybody's ever met. So at least it was, at least it held to tr- that silly tradition. <laughs> what were our biggest takeaways from this opening sequence? I mean, it's clear that Damon is now going to be inheriting Runestone after killing his wife. I mean, what are kind of like the big implications of this? Lauren, I'm going to throw this to you. Well, it's sort of interesting because like in, I'll try not to get into the book spoilers, but you know, it was kind of like Lady Rhea died, but they didn't really say that Damon kind of killed her. It was sort of like suggested maybe he had something to do with it. But this was really like, oh no, he killed her. Her falling off the horse, he could be like, eh, I didn't really do it. But then he picked up that stone and you're like, oh, he did he did that. So that was <laughs> quite, it, I mean, it, it definitely seems like uh, Damon thought La- Lady uh, Rhea was proverbial ball and chain, and he had other desires, and she was preventing him from fulfilling them. So I think he just was like, man, I'm going to get rid of her. And, and that, that was like a very kind of bold move, I thought, in terms of this is really a, a black mark against Damon here. <laughs> he just out and out murders his wife. So, you know, that's another complicating uh, aspect to Damon's personality. More of those queer Targaryen customs that Allison warned us about. I don't know if this one's a Targaryen custom or just sort of an aberration. Just murdering everyone. Yeah, just like outright, like, you know, this is definitely Magor the Cruel kind of stuff. 
Mike, what were kind of the biggest takeaways for you about kind of like this opening sequence with Lady Rhea? I love the way they introduced her because it gave Damon's point of view just a little bit, not, not the murder part, like just make that clear, not the part where he murders her, but his general feelings towards her because we saw that the way they presented her, she was kind of cold and cruel, even to her own family members. And you wonder what kind of life they might have had together if she had just been nice or fun and Damon liked being around her. And it makes you think, what would history have looked like if Damon Targaryen had enjoyed his first lady wife? And there was also that weird moment where her cousin, Gerald, or whatever his name is, was like, I'm like, are you coming on to your cousin? No, let's keep this in the Targaryens. Let's not... <laughs> spread this around all of Westeros. It was definitely, it was like, how did this match get made? And did anyone realize this was just terrible from the get-go? <laughs> like, you know, I know there's political marriages, but this one just seemed doomed from the start. I mean, one thing we know about the Targaryens is that they don't talk to each other. They need major therapy and they're not getting it. <laughs> they need a good family therapist. I mean, the Grand Maester is not going to do it. <laughs> Well, another character that we get a lot more of in this episode is Lenor Valarian. We first saw him as a little baby boy in the tourney jousting sequence in episode one, sitting next to his sister. He then appeared later in episode three as a fully grown teen, fighting on the stepstones alongside his father and uncle and riding his dragon, Sea Smoke. We see him now again as he's getting engaged to Rhaenyra in this big effort to join House Targaryen and House Valarian by blood. Mike, what are kind of your big impressions? impressions about Lenor as like as as much as we know about him in the show thus far. I think the fact that they let us see what a brave warrior he is first really helped frame the character. And the fact that he's marrying his cousin and she already knows the truth about him. The same way it seems everybody knows. You know, there wasn't there wasn't really a whole lot of mystery about what was going on with him and I thought that that really showed how little these marriages have to do with anything other than helping their political outlook. And, you know, it's it's sad, but it was also kind of nice to see them be tender with each other in a caring way, even if it wasn't a romantic way. Lauren, what about you? I mean, I think it was interesting to see that Renera, like after the last episode where her father's like, you're marrying him. And in this episode, she's like, okay, I'm going to just make the best of this. And it's like, it seems like they had like sort of a friendly rapport. And she was basically just being like, you do what you want to do. It's like after we serve what we need to do for the realm, you live your life. And it just seems like they had kind of like a friendly like understanding. Yeah, okay, you know, we've got to do this, but fine. So I thought that was a really interesting aspect of it. And then it's just like, and like later on, it just gets to be like, other people just get up in their business when they have like a perfectly fine relationship. She's totally like, sure, I'll be your beard. I don't care. And he's just like, yeah, go do whatever you want. I don't care either. So you're like, this is a pretty mature relationship out of all the marriages we've seen. We're just This might not be based in love, but you know, this was something that that was could be working for both of them. But then, you know, things went slightly awry. But I mean, Mike, to your point, I think you know, Corliss and Viserys seem very much stuck in the old ways. I mean, these are probably like two of the only characters on this show who are still like, oh yeah, like the realm is just going to have to accept, you know, Rhaenyra as they are. They're not going to have any choice. Completely blind to the fact that times are changing and new perspectives are kind of coming in. And then, so it kind of made me laugh a little bit when Rhaenyra is like, I'm the cool millennial or Gen Z. And like, <laughs> we're, we're super progressive. Don't worry. We'll, we'll figure this out. <laughs> You're going to be protected. I also love that once again, we see that maybe the smartest, most capable person in the entire realm is Rhaenys, who 
recognizes immediately, we are putting our son in danger. You think we're doing this great thing for him and for our house. We are putting him right in the line of fire. And we have to be aware of just how dangerous this situation is. And I, everything she says or does just leaves me more and more impressed with her. And once again, there's, there's so many points in this story where you look and say, if B had happened instead of A, all of history might have changed. Well, let's just go back to when she was passed over. And technically, technically, I know the show changed it that it was only one time. Technically, she was passed over twice. So two separate times, the, the, the lords of the realm had a chance to pick a very good, smart, capable leader, and they didn't. And when you see her, you're like, oh, she's a natural leader in a way that Viserys is not. And I thought what was interesting with that conversation between her and Corliss is it also kind of mirrored the conversation that Otto had with Alicent later on, talking about how, when are you going to realize that your children are in danger if you do not push this forward? And But part of me, when I when Otto said that, I'm like, Otto, you put them in danger. You're the one who shoved her in her adversaries like you like endangered your entire line by doing this so it's just interesting like you know Otto having this sort of blindness about his own act culpability and what happened whereas Rhaenys is very much like do you realize what we're doing to our son you know and I think Rhaenys also realizes her son is not super into girls and so she realizes like she is really they're really putting him into into like the the viper's nest here or the dragon's den as we could could say yeah i'm gonna read this quote that steve chassant gave in one of our recent interviews he says lanor is basically everything that corliss would want from a son except for one predilection lanor is gay and while corliss thinks of it as just youthful whatever he never really comes face to face with the fact of that no your son is not going to be marrying that woman because that's not who he is he just disregards that and in fact later on it has disastrous results so i thought thought it was really telling that Rhaenys was the one to kind of have that line that she does because it's very foreshadowing, very foreboding as we're going to get into a little bit later. But I also wanted to ask you guys about Lenore's lover, Joffrey. I mean, I think anyone named Joffrey is kind of cursed in the Game <laughs> of Thrones universe. We don't really know too much about him from the books, really. I think we have like a line or two with a few details there. We know a little bit more about him in the show. Mike, what were your first impressions of this character? You know, if all the characters so far, he feels like maybe the one who both they had nothing to work with, but also made him exactly like he was supposed to be. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, like it was really like he came from the, the brief little story we know. There's I always think back to when Baelish is meeting with Cersei and he says, knowledge is power. And she says, seize him. And she reminds him, power is power. You, you, it doesn't matter what you know if you can't actually do anything with it. And that that scene with him and Sir Kristen Cole, that was that was it with just the actual ramifications of threatening someone with knowledge. And he wasn't he didn't come across as particularly smart. He wasn't careful enough. He wasn't careful enough. He was way too flippant. And I guess, you know, mess around and find, find out in the worst way possible. He really assumed that Kristen was in the same frame of mind that he was about this whole situation where he's like, yeah, I'm not the happiest person about this, but this was kind of the best way we, this would have happened. And Kristen had, you know, it was, they were going through some stuff and he just kind of got him at the wrong moment. Like <laughs> Kristen lost his marbles, you know, at that, at that point when we were going to talk to, to about it. But it's like, yeah, he really like, I was like, why did you even say that to him at that point? You know, just keep that one in your pocket. Understand, you know, what, what's going on here. He revealed your cards way too early. 
I also love this line. Again, we're going to get into the wedding sequence a bit later on. But I love this line that Lenore kind of tells Kristen Cole about how he's like, oh, yeah, the people call me the Knight of Kisses. I don't know why they call me that, which I love because in the books, they mention that. But there's like, eh, you don't need to read too much into that. Well, uh, like, there's so much about Joffrey that reminded me of Loras Tyrell and, like, the Renly Baratheon thing, which I didn't think that Game of Thrones did that relationship particularly well. I thought, like, George had sort of handled that better in the book. And I thought this was, like, oh, you could see, like, there's, like, honest affection between Lenor and Joffrey and and that kind of, like, you know, and they have, like, seem like they have a pretty healthy relationship and and that kind of stuff. And But, but like, that was, like, the immediate thing I was thinking about. I was always kind of disappointed with the way Renly and Loras were portrayed in the show because I didn't think they gave them kind of the proper like proper portrayal I thought and so here I I was thinking like it seemed like they were correcting the the initial mistake that Game of Thrones made here between a couple that was the fact that he said I don't know why they call me the Knight of Kisses was was very strange because there's one very good reason they would call him that his house's sigil is made up of red lips and, and skulls and there's only like one other figure from House uh, Lawnmouth that we ever meet. And he's also known as the Knight of, I think, Skulls and Kisses. I think that's what it's called. But, you know, so it almost made me think that he was unaware of the fact that he's probably called the Knight of Kisses because everybody knows his secret. And, you know, this is once again, everybody thinks they're keeping these great secrets in Westeros and nobody's keeping any secrets. There are rats, proverbial and literal, everywhere. And there are no secrets. So you have to assume that somebody somewhere is plotting against you and going to use that that knowledge against you at some point. I like this read of it much better because my first thought was, oh, is this another Stranger Things situation where the creators forgot Will Byers' birthday? (laughs) 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 But no, I I like this much more, (laughs) much better. Or when Daenerys just forgot that, you know, when she was flying back to Dragonstone and Rhaegal died, because she's like, she kind of just forgot they were there, (laughs) you know, when when Dan Benioff said that. And you're just like... Ugh, you know. <laughs> Mike, are you still hurt about that moment? You brought up maybe the one thing that could have me go full Kristen Cole on somebody. Just, <laughs> just, I wish I could just forget about Daenerys just forgetting about the Iron Yeah, Fleet. that, you know, trust me, I, I am the same thing, you know, losing a dragon in such a stupid manner. was. <laughs> but alas, we shall, you know, we, we are 200 years before, so we'll go back to that. Well, the first scene that we get of Lenor and Joffrey in this episode is they are sparring with each other with swords as the king arrives at high tide. And speaking of high tide, I I love that we get a clearer look inside this castle of Driftmark. It is the ancestral seat of power for House Valarian. And Steve Toussaint once said in an interview that, you know, he and showrunner Ryan Condal developed all these backstories for like specific objects that are just inside high, t- high Tide, just so that he as an actor would know how to properly interact with things as he kind of moved about the space. And we get a lot of cool looks. I was curious if there was any specific detail of High Tide or Driftmark that stood out to both of you. I'm just worried about what it means to take the Crab Feeder's mask, because the Crab Feeder had grayscale. And I would not want anything that ever touched anybody who had grayscale, especially when he was wearing it on his face and neck where he had it. You know, I understand the the power of these mementos. Anybody comes and they can see what you have accomplished. You have you have traveled the world over in a way nobody else in Westeros ever did. But maybe put put the crab feeder's mask in a bag 
Put it, put it under something. Put it behind some glass. <laughs> Don't have that. Oh, you got kids. What if they put it on? Maybe he had it boiled for a while. Like he boiled it in lye or something like that. Grayscale never goes away. It never truly goes away. If Jorimama had survived the, the Battle of Winterfell, he would have eventually had Grayscale again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> You're tr- truly, but alas, poor Jorah. Hmm. Lauren, what about you? Favorite detail of High Tide? Oh, I thought like the production stuff was like, I loved seeing the inside of this, this sort of throne room and just the way that Corliss did not come out and uh, meet Viserys and was like sitting on his throne when Viserys showed up. I was like, Ooh, that is a, that is a, uh, a boss move there. Just, you know, sitting on your throne waiting for the King of Westeros to show up. But uh, like just like the, the detail and I would love it if we just got to see more production photos of just close up. Cause there's so much detail that goes into all of this stuff and so much artistry and stuff. And, and, you know, you only see it for a couple of minutes and I know these, you know, these production artists have probably worked on these things for hours, but I just thought the whole entire, the whole entire setup was really interesting. But I also just loved how Corliss and Renice sort of used Driftmark to kind of get hold one over on Viserys. You know, Renice didn't even show up until like, you know, she kind of showed up mid conversation and she's not even like formally dressed. She's like wearing, like she's wearing pants. She's not like dressed to receive a king. She's just kind of like, yeah, I was just kind of hanging out, you know, doing some stuff and oh yeah, my cousin's here. I'll maybe I'll go and see him. Like she's not like dressed for a formal reception either. So I just thought the whole, the whole way that they did that was kind of interesting. Eve Best in this role is eating it. <laughs> yeah, I love her. I would wish we could see more of it. I had missed her in the last couple of episodes, so I was glad to see her return as, as short as it was for a little bit, but I think she the, her character is just so interesting. Some details that I loved inside High Tide is it looks like the throne itself, or at least part of it, is built with elements of a ship. Maybe it's like wood, in my mind, maybe it's wood from the famous sea snake ship vessel. And then I also loved that off in the corner by the throne, I don't know if y- you guys could confirm it, but it looked like Corlys Valarian also had his own little old Valyria kind of the toy train set <laughs> like Viserys has in his chambers. I was like, I think it is because it looked like it had little stone dragon statues or figures. Oh, I ha- I didn't notice that. But it's just that's funny that this is the way these men entertain themselves by building these little tiny sets. We've been calling it the Westeros equivalent of the toy train hobbies. <laughs> we also see there is a new actress playing Lena Valarian, Savannah Stein, which I think they did that for reasons, which we'll get into later on. I mean, it was very creepy when uh, Patty Considine was having that scene with the young child star a couple of episodes ago. It's at least a little bit more visually palatable there, but we'll dig into that a little bit later. But I was curious who you guys thought was the gentleman accompanying Lena in that first scene when she comes out to meet the king. It's not Vaymond. We've met Vaymond before. He's played by Will Johnson. My guess, I think, I think Lauren and I, we were talking about it earlier. I think maybe it's like one of Vaymond's kids. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, you know, because he he looks kind of like 
uh, Vaymond, and I just thought, oh, this must be like a cousin or something that just hangs around Driftmark. But I thought that was interesting. That's who Corliss sent out was like Lena and one of his nephews. It's like, yeah, you go, you go fetch the gang. The whole process kind of made me go back into the books because I completely forgot in Fire and Blood that Vaymond isn't Corliss's brother. Like he's sort of his eldest nephew, which kind of changes the family tree when you make Vaymond now his brother. And I'm like, who the hell? is this person who's just standing there. I don't know. <laughs> just small things. I'm like, he's the another person standing with the king. He must be important. Who the hell is this guy? And of course, my digging into the credits of this episode did not help me in the matter. So that'll be a little bit of a mystery. Now let's talk about another character who has a very big, well, a few very big moments in this episode, Sir Kristen Cole. Mike, I think I read a tweet that you sent out that you're like, I think this episode proves so well why I hate this guy. <laughs> what are your impressions of him? <laughs> Look, I don't want to say I hate him, but someday when I go to meet the many-faced god, I hope they say three things about me. One, I was a good father. Two, I was a good husband. And three, I hated Sir Kristen Cole more than anybody else that ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> they, we can when we get into the book stuff, we can talk specifically, but there are lots of reasons I don't like Sir Kristen Cole. And while some of the things I thought I maybe knew about him turned out to be different, they didn't make me feel any differently about him. The idea that he is blaming the young girl who was drunk the first time they got together, blaming her for taking his honor as opposed to him just not having the honor really infuriated me. And him then asking her to give up everything she has to make him feel a little bit better about himself and to maybe absolve him of the things that he feels he's done wrong. I, I just don't know. Am I supposed to feel bad for him? Am I supposed to feel his point of view? Am I supposed to see it? Am I supposed to empathize with him? Because they're almost every other character, even ones that from reading Fire and Blood that I've always disliked, I found myself saying, oh, geez, you know, maybe they're a little bit more sympathetic than I thought. Maybe they're a little bit more understandable. With him, it's not happening. And nothing that happened in this episode made me feel any differently about him. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So yeah, we're talking about the scene on this ship where Kristen Cole goes to Rhaenyra and is, and basically says, run away with me to Essos where we can actually get married for love and eat bushels of oranges. And she's like, I don't want your oranges. <laughs> I want the crown. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's being a complete fool in that. It's like she's the heir to the Iron Throne, you fool. Like, like you just have to realize like wh- what your position is in this. And it's just like, I, I know like, you know, Renera always seemed to have a little bit of a crush on him, but when she slept with him last episode, it seemed like kind of a crime of opportunity. She's like, my uncle got me all riled up. You're here, you know, let's go. And then Kristen got all up in his feelings about it. And, and I, I think it's like, he got mad at her for turning him down. And she's, the heir to the Iron Throne, you numbnut. Like, what are you thinking here? You know, I mean, it, it does really complicate a lot of stuff to come. And Kristen plays a, a big, pretty big role in that. But you're, it, like, there's a thing you're like, you dumb idiot. Why did you even think that this was a real option she could take? I mean, I, I initially did have sympathy for Kristen Cole. I could at least understand, like, the kind of puppy dog eyes and schoolboy crush on Rhaenyra. But then to your point, Mike, I think where I turned personally on the character is after she rebuffed him, his first response was, well, 
like my reputation is destroyed and this was the only way that was going to save it. So I'm like, oh, do you really love her? Or Or is this just about your reputation? You know, and it's also like nobody knows. No, like literally nobody knows your reputation. Like that's just a little issue you're having. Nobody knows that you two had sex. So it's like your reputation's fine as far as everyone else is concerned. And perhaps maybe just write in your journal or something until you can resolve that. But like putting that on her was completely unfair. A couple of takeaways from my interview with Fabian, which will be shown in full or screened in full, I should say, later on in the podcast, is one, he mentioned that Miguel Sapochnik told him that he always thought of Kristen Cole as a thug, which that that word would have never come to mind when I was first reading the book or watching this show. It makes a little bit more sense now. And then a few events that Fabian pointed out was in episode one, Kristen uses his mace and, you know, attacks Damon from behind versus waiting for both of them to kind of get their ground. And that's how he's able to overthrow Damon. And then he said as an actor in the moment, he didn't really understand why Kristen would be asking for Rhaenyra's favor in that tourney sequence until he got to the scene where they recorded Damon smacking his hand out of the way. And he's like, oh, Kristen's like pissed off that Damon did this. So now I'm going to go and ask for Rhaenyra's favor, which also kind of explains, it, it, it kind of paints this guy, he's very reactionary, it seems. He doesn't really think about things. He just kind of is going off of raw emotion. It's probably what you want for your defender, like someone who's just going to start start wailing, but... I am, I am thankful to him for one reason, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything because you guys have talked in the past about how the fire and blood is based on, you know, unreliable sources who sometimes give conflicting... The single biggest mystery that I was eager to learn from this show is what exactly happened during this moment because one report said he asked her to run away with him, and the other report said she asked him to, to give it all up for her. And this is such a key moment in their relationship and such a key moment in the story. And I always believed it was him asking her. In, in no circumstances did I think she would give everything up considering how we know she's going to fight for it. So I was very excited to see that he was exactly the person I thought he was. So thank you, Sir Kristen Cole, for coming through for me that way. <laughs> but just like in real life, you can't trust men. <laughs> this one showed his true colors. Yeah, that, that really did confirm it. Because like when I saw him make the proposal, I was like, oh, this is, you know, that's, this is why the falling out happens is because he got his feelings hurt. And so he decided to. But there's some stuff where it's like later on during the sort of the beginning of the wedding feast. He's obviously like Sir Joffrey notices that he looks a little love struck. He didn't use that word, but I'm going to because this is a family podcast. But, you know, and you look at Renera and she seems completely unbothered. It's not like she's giving Kristen longing looks. Like she's giving Damon more longing looks than she's giving Kristen. So it's like she just seems to be like dancing and having a fine time. And yeah, I'm getting married and whatever. And like, I have a feeling that that probably rubbed Kristen a little bit of the wrong way is that she did not look like she was conflicted at all about what was about to happen, like in terms of marrying Lenore. So now let's talk about Alicent. Poor Alicent. I mean, I still feel for her. I mean, at the beginning of this episode, we uh, we see the aftermath of Otto being ousted as Hand of the King. He has this conversation with his daughter where he really just scares the shit out of her. And no matter what viewers kind of think of Otto or think of Alicent, she's really alone 
at King's Landing. All of her family has kind of been ousted. Rainier and her are kind of on rocky terrain. And certain figures kind of come into her orbit at this very vulnerable mental state. Mike, what are kind of your big takeaways about Allison's arc on episode five. The the scene with her and her father as he's leaving, combined with the scene when Sir Christopher accidentally confesses to her, I think those two scenes are it kind of explain everything that's going to happen with her and why this this attitude of Rhaenyra is going to be a good queen. I don't want my son to overstep her is going to change. You know, this is this is it because she she took Rhaenyra's side over her father's. It got her father cast out. She she sees then that, boy, I, I wasn't loyal to my family and my family suffered because of it. And then she finds out she did that on a lie. She stuck her neck out for Rhaenyra and Rhaenyra lied to her. And considering she is already so, you know, she does her duty. She grits her teeth and she does her duty and she doesn't love it and she doesn't love her life, but she does what she's supposed to do. And now here's this princess who's being given the keys to the kingdom who can't do her own duty. And I think that we have, we are really seeing why this relationship is going to sour as badly as it is and as quickly as it is. Yeah, it's sort of exactly because it's like, you know, basically Rhaenyra's lies get her father, like, because Rhaenyra's like, how dare Otto, you know, accuse me of such scandal? And it turns out, oh, well, Otto, he, he was wrong about the man who was involved, but pretty accurate about what exactly was going on. You know, she believed Rhaenyra and that, like she lost her father as like her father is no longer hand of the king and then you know it was Rhaenyra's lies that caused that and then you know she finds this out from Kristen and so and as, as I've talked about in, in previous podcasts Allison's a little bit of goody two shoes she's she's tries to be moral she tries to be a lady you know she's she's she feels like she's done her duty again and again and again and Rhaenyra has just not she didn't marry when her father wanted her to. She caused a huge scandal. She's, and I think Allison just realizes Renair's just a liar. And she thinks she's a liar. And I think she does care about the realm and probably thinks this woman is not fit to be sitting on the Iron Throne. And I think that is kind of, that's, that's really where everything sort of starts is that Allison just becomes sort of a true believer that Renera is, and, and I feel like a ton, a ton of sympathy for Renera. I like her as a character, but like, I think Allison just thinks like this this, this, well, I can't say it, but, um, you know, she just, <laughs> you know, again, family podcast, but, you know, that she's just acting very common and not like a queen should act and not doing her duty. And I think Allison's like, well, I've had enough of this and I am, you know, I don't care if this is my husband's daughter. I, I will not stand for it anymore. And I think that's what you start to see here. There's also a lot more urgency, I think, for Allison after what Otto says. I mean, we get all of these scenes where Viserys is literally toppling over, like he can't even stand up anymore. And I think that's planting further seeds in the back of Allison's mind, kind of echoing what Otto tells her, like, Viserys is going to die soon. He's not going to be an old man. He's not going to make it. And at that point, you're going to have to make a decision, like your children's lives or you know, throwing yourself to Rhaenyra. I think she's also starting to see like she is realizing, or I think she believes that Rhaenyra is not a person of good quality. So I think this is tying into the idea that she thinks, oh, this person could kill my children. You know, like, I think she wants to believe, oh, you know, she's still my friend. She's never going to do that. But then once she starts seeing all the stuff that Rhaenyra's gotten up to, she's like, maybe she will kill my children, you know? So it becomes more of like, I think of like sort of a, a paranoia about stopping Rhaenyra before she can 
take away her, you know, her children, who she doesn't seem to be super fond of anyway, but it's just like, you know, not, she does not seem to be the most loving mother, but you know, I will, I will grant her that she does not seem to want her children to die. Mike, I'll throw this question to you. Why do you think after, you know, Kristen kind of confesses that he slept with Rhaenyra to Allison, why do you think she spared him at the end of that scene? She's starting to play the long game. You know, she has actual power. So when you have actual power, knowledge is really useful. And now she has this knowledge over both him and Rhaenyra. And, you know, she's probably not going to be able to manipulate Rhaenyra, but she might be able to manipulate Sir Kristen Cole, who we just saw is not the brightest person in the realm. So it was very, it was a type of cunning we haven't seen from Allison that is definitely a sign of her evolving attitudes on, hey, I'm, I am kind of here by myself and I better start figuring out how to, to play the Game of Thrones. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to get into the Red Wedding 2.0. Stay (laughs) tuned. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Okay, so now we have a wedding ceremony, which in Game of Thrones lore, history, is never actually a good thing, (laughs) especially if you're named Joffrey, apparently. But to start things off, Lauren and I really love the dragons. I don't know how you feel about them, Mike. We, we every time we meet one, we're like, "Hell yeah, more dragons, more fire, more blood. Let's get into it." And we see two dragons flying to King's Landing from House Valerian. One of them we already know is Sea Smoke. That's Lainor's dragon. The other one is red, and it looks like a woman is riding her. I think this is Melis, who is rode by Princess Rhaenys Targaryen. Melis is known as the Red Queen, and Eve Bass, the actress who plays Rhaenys, she said that Rhaenys is the most skilled dragon rider in Westeros, which I thought was really interesting because Daemon has Caraxes, who is one of the most powerful dragons um, of House Targaryen or House Velaryon. But even still, Rhaenys is still the better dragon rider. I mean, Lauren, uh, do you think it's Maylis? Do you you have another theory about who this dragon is? I know that we see another dragon in six. So initially I had thought it might be Vagar, but then I, you know, I think you're right that it is Maylis, who we haven't really, I would love to see like Rhaenys on dragon back, right? And that, that dragon. So I just want more dragon stuff, but yeah. So I I could see that as being Maylis. So I think we're now up to four dragons that we have officially seen. And now they're all here for one purpose, the wedding between Lenor and Rhaenyra. It's starting with this welcome feast. There's supposed to be days upon days of tourneys and jousting and celebration of this. All of that gets cut short. (laughs) <laughs> because of a major moment that happens between Sir Kristen Cole and Joffrey Lawnmouth. Mike, what did you think of all of the events that kind of transpired over this wedding? Obviously, weddings don't tend to go off without a problem in Westeros, but is this the first time a rehearsal dinner 
has completely blown up in everybody's face. I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't care if you're in a fantasy world or the real world. I don't care where you where you are. If your rehearsal dinner suddenly has to be the wedding, things things took a turn for the worse. So I you know, at this point, why don't people even have these big weddings? Just get just get accepted and do it. Let's go. Well one way boom bam boom. No feast. Let's go. <laughs> Lauren, what about you? Yeah, that, that's like the interesting thing because, like, I think in the in the uh, rehearsal dinner turns into the wedding, but in the in the in the book, Kristen does he winds up killing Joffrey, but it's not quite in this situation. It's like during the wedding, like feast, like it's like during this period, but it's like, but you know, Jeffrey Long Joffrey, sorry, I keep calling him Jeffrey. He dies kind of like six days later, so this is like they really kind of condensed it into we're just going to do everything in this, in this one little bit. But it was like, I thought it was like a very eventful wedding scene because just like you have Damon shows up, you know, newly widowed Damon shows up. And I was just amazed that like Viserys didn't toss him out on his ass. But I guess he was just like, well, I'm just going to deal with this one. And, and he's made, and Damon's making eyes at Lena and, you know, and then we get introduced to, um, well, we, we, we've seen, uh, Sir, um, Sir Laris, he is, he's starting to come in as to being one of the big players, but we also get to see Sir Harwin Strong, who's going to play a big part in what's going to come on soon. And he had a, a he actually was the, one of the, the guys from the City Watch who stopped Rhaenyra last week when he caught her in the middle of, out on the streets of Silk, but it was him that caught her. And, and then sort of saw Damon and kind of let them be. But like Sir Harwin is Sir Laris's brother and he's the son of the new hand of the King Lionel Strong. So, you know, it's like kind of like they are setting sort of up some new new characters and what they're going to, to be. But like when sort of like everything starts going wild, I loved that shot of Lionel looking at Sir Harwin, who's known as Breakbones and like, go to work, buddy. Like, I know you can stop this. And he just kind of like goes in there and he starts laying people down just to get the princess out. So I thought that was kind of like, I just liked that little scene where it was like, I know you can do this. So you <laughs> start breaking bones. And to add to what you just said, Lauren, we saw Harwin a little bit earlier at the very end of episode three with the the hunting, the royal hunting party. He's the he's the guy who winks at Rhaenyra and like smiles <laughs> at her when she brings the boar back to camp. And I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> So yes, these characters are going to be playing big parts or bigger parts in the events ahead. Let's shift over a little bit to book talk. So anyone listening in, this is where we're going to be bringing in the events of Fire and Blood to talk about the show in a larger context. So if you want to skip this portion of the podcast and go straight to the interview at the end, feel free, go forth. But Lauren, as you mentioned earlier, this episode really kind of changed up the sequence of events of a lot of things. What were kind of like the biggest things in your mind that stood out? Just like sort of condensing everything down into this one crazy night where it's like Kristen kills Joffrey. Kristen tries to kill himself afterward. Like Alice, it stops him from doing that. Lainor well, loses his love. And then he and Rainer, like just everyone's like in tears during the wedding ceremony and like, every, and like, and then Viserys just collapses in the middle of it and like it's kind of just a wild scene and and it's really funny because in the book it's not like a, a detailed scene 
and, and it's like that's just I think the funniest thing about Fire and Blood. It's just taking these lines and then just building all of these huge scenes out of them. So it was sort of like really just condensing it for maximum dramatic power. So I thought that was pretty interesting. What did you think, Mike? I think this is the first episode that really made clear that we're not seeing the real version of the history. We are seeing an adaptation of the story. You know, and they have the freedom to fill in these gaps or or give definitive answers. But this episode is the first one that really condenses both on the macro and the micro level. There's stuff that happens over the course of years. You know, Lady Rhea dies a year after the wedding, you know, but here she's dead before. And we also see, you know, he doesn't kill Joffrey Lonmouth that, like that. It's during the tourney, like you were talking about. It's, it's during a tourney and he dies six days later. You know, so they really are just kind of saying, you know what? This is all good stuff. There's really not a, f- a feasible way to tell it over this long period of time. And until now they could, but now that they can't, they're just going for it. And I'm not upset with that or anything. I, if people are upset that they're condensing the timeline, it's an adaptation. You know, and it, what works on the page isn't going to work here. And this episode really works. So I, I don't have any complaints. I, I just was surprised by how much. That's that's why I was saying I couldn't believe how much actually happened and, and how quickly it all happened. You know, because this is, this is, it feels like it's, what, a week? You know, it's not like Driftmark is far from Dragonstone. You could, the king can get there and back and then they can come here and back and things can be organized. So yeah, this is probably the most amount of changes. I think though, the the strangest one isn't necessarily a change. It's that Laris Clubfoot, I don't know what's going on with him here. You know, this is, this is stuff I didn't expect to see from him for another 10 years chronologically. It's funny though, because like Laris, I mean, the actor, he's making quite an impression on me. Because like in the book, Laris just just did not make an impression on me. Like I was reading over it last night, and it's like they mention Laris, but you're like, oh, this guy's really like kind of the new little finger. He has got his hands. He's doing a lot of stuff, and it's interesting when you see something visually, it sort of hits you in a way that it didn't. Like he didn't really pop for me in the book at all and he's definitely popping on the show but he is definitely he is a chaos agent <laughs> like he is definitely a chaos agent in this it also makes me rethink how active players how strong generally are kind of in the sequence of events of house of the dragon i mean the father is the new hand of the king he doesn't even have to say anything to harwin to go rescue rainera he just like winks at him or nods at him so it kind of gives the impression that maybe if we're kind of like theorizing, maybe there is some behind the scenes orchestration of things going on. I mean, I mean, the character description for Laris is just doesn't even mention the club foot. It's just he's a, the youngest son of Lionel and Lionel brought him to court. Well, why did he bring him to court? Maybe this is the reason that he brought him to court. I don't know, just kind of theorizing. But do we kind of think generally this is the new little finger or do we think Laris is kind of doing something a little bit more unique? I almost think of of him as being the new Varys more than anything. The way he, you know, little finger, he was, he operated in the shadows, but we always knew exactly what he wanted. Varys... Varys was better about keeping all of his cards close to the chest. And that is definitely what we see with Laris here. You know, we, for, for what we know from the books, it certainly seems like a certain event in the future is what sort of sets Laris down the path that he goes, which is why I didn't expect to see anything like this for another 10 years into the story. But here he is already, you know, his father just got named Hand of the King and he is now operating against that king's heir. And it makes you wonder, is he kind of just juggling a lot of balls because he doesn't know where they're going to land and he wants to make sure he's he's got a, something and, you know, he wants to make sure that no matter what happens, he's in his family is okay. Or does he have a motive that we don't know 
And whether or not we ever know it is up for debate. You know, this show, this show might not give us any more answers than the books does because in the books, everyone kind of says like, nobody knows why he did what he did or, or anything like that. So he, I, I think he's already an absolutely fascinating character. And I totally agree. Seeing him operate makes him pop in a way that he does not on the page because because again the people telling the history don't have they don't even guess about what he's thinking yeah he's just like he's so he's so subtle in his machinations that they don't even catch wind that he's doing anything and i think that's really interesting one thing that i i think house of the dragon has been really good about is characters who didn't pop on the page like i didn't think viserys particularly popped on the page but i think patty constantine's doing such a great job that he really does sort of pop here i mean damon popped on the page so i understood him but it's like, even then, like Matt Smith is adding so much more complexity and like, what is he doing kind of uh, aspect to it. So I think that's sort of an, an interesting change. One um, other relationship I'm interested to see, I mean, if it goes anywhere, is Lena Valarian and Rhaenyra. Because in the book, they it implies that they have a really close bond that develops over the years. I remember back in episode one, Rainier was kind of having these little flirtatious moments with Alicent in kind of the courtyard at the Red Keep. And Emily Carey, who plays Alicent, said that was intentional, like they meant to kind of play that bit up. So I'm wondering if this is another relationship that's going to be playing a part in things, just kind of like this close relationship between Lena and Rhaenyra. Might it be some kind of behind the scenes romance that we're not going to get or we are going to get? I don't know. But that's just another kind of relationship that kind of stuck out in my mind. I also wanted to ask you guys, how do you feel about this? Did we see Mushroom finally in this episode? Oh, I there was one person who I thought looked like like he could be. I'm like, that looks like a man named Mushroom. So I did think there was one shot. But if that's Mushroom, like Mike, does it make sense that that would be the character? He has long hair and a long beard. So if he sh- if he cuts them and he shaves, and I think in the in the book he's in the World of Ice Fire's art small, you know his art is is clean shaven and short hair. So if that could be him, he could just simply you know because they're not, the people who think Mushroom is a fool. I doubt that they would think he was a capable musician, the kind who would be hired to play for the king for his daughter's rehearsal dinner. Um, so I, I hate to hedge. I'm not trying to hedge. I'm not trying to take the easy way out. Yes, it definitely could be Mushroom. And that would already that would already place him at a major event in the story that he could recall later. But I think they've they've left the door open for themselves if they want to either make it mushroom or not down the line. The point that I will say this: no matter what, they want us to be asking this question. They <laughs> this that that's the one thing I'm sure of. They wanted us right now to be saying, "Is it mushroom? Start the mushroom watch. Let's go." Yeah. Well, Lauren, you had this great theory a couple of podcasts ago about maybe mushroom isn't a real person. Maybe this is just kind of a personality that someone like Otto or whoever was actually feeding this information to the maester or the archmaester who's writing this history just kind of crafted out of thin air to kind of explain where all the information came came from. Who knows? It could be Larisu's mushroom and he he could, this could be his non-deplume. Who knows? Like, this is just like, (laughs) you know... Before we kind of close out this conversation, I wanted to ask if there were any kind of Easter eggs, sigils, name drops, lines of dialogue, any kind of like small detail that really kind of stood out to you and just kind of like really spoke to you. Mushroom was the first thing that I would, you know, I was like, is that mushroom? I don't know. But, you know, so that was the the first one. But you know, they didn't talk about this. I don't know if this is particularly an Easter egg, but just sort of like 
the Lena and Damon sort of little flirting going on there. It's not technically an Easter egg, but that's something you want to put a pin on because that's going to, that's going to come out. That's going to affect some uh, future stuff. So in terms of any other, Oh, the, the whole thing with the green, the green dress. That's the big thing. There we go. The greens, the black and the greens. We finally see Allison shows up very dramatically in the middle of this rehearsal dinner wearing a green dress. And that was always in the books. They're always talking about the blacks and the greens. The blacks was Rhaenyra's kind of team and the greens were Allison's team. And that was sort of something Laris said, do you know what color House Hightower uses when they go to war? And it's green. And so for her to show up in that green dress is very much like, and I noticed that the rest of House Hightower was also wearing green because when she went to go see her uncle, the person next to his uncle was also a member of House Hightower was also wearing a green dress. So basically House Hightower was all declaring war at this point. So that was like the big moment. I think the green, when her, she showed up in the green dress was definitely like, ah, we've finally got the green dress. Mike, what about you? Two other things that really stood out to me. One is that the relationship between Rhaenyra and Laenor in in Fire and Blood? There's a line that she says something like, "I he'd be more happy with he'd be happier with my brothers," you know. And there's this idea that she was really she really disliked Laenor, that she it, it, I, it almost bordering on disgust as subtext. But here we see not only did she know it, she embraced it. And the the histories Rhaenyra does not come across well in any of the histories. She's coming across significantly better on the show where we're actually seeing her side of the story. So that one really stood out to me because that is, that's kind of a moment of where you really don't like her, you know, where she's really kind of mocking somebody who's in a tough spot too. You know, it's not like Laner has much say in his life. None of these, none of these kids do from these powerful houses. The other one was the introduction of Maester Orwell. That was I, that was probably the one where I, I I geeked out the most. Like, okay, yeah, here we go, here we go. And and the way he comes in too, the, the, this episode is really raising the question of what does Sir Otto Hightower and the Maesters know about the king and his health and the kind of treatment he's getting? Because Maester Orwell certainly seemed to think he wasn't getting the best care. So if you want to talk about putting a pin on something and marking it for the future, that that was the one for me. One thing that stood out to me, it's not really an Easter egg. It's more just kind of like a line of dialogue that I really like. It's when Rhaenyra and Laenor are dancing and she tells him, I was never much of a dancer. He responds, it is not much different to combat. And she says, I should hope for a different outcome. And just this play on words linking dancing to combat. The Dance of the Dragons is the name of the civil war that we're going to get in the future. And I, I kind of love that. I can't wait for it. Next week, next week, guys, we are finally getting Emma Darcy, Olivia Cook in the roles of adults, Rhaenyra and Alicent, respectively. What are we most excited for about these two actresses coming in to take over the roles? You know, it was funny when we first saw, I mean, I've, you know, as as I mentioned, I saw the first six episodes right before the show premiered and I watched them right in a row. And it's funny because at the time I didn't think Emily Carey was like a very strong Allison. And so I was kind of like, when I saw Olivia Cook, I was like, yeah, there's Allison. But it's funny as we've been rewatching them and talking about them, I've like really kind of warmed to Emily's performance but i think there is something that does happen when olivia cook shows up that allison just snaps into tight focus in a way where it's like she's like young and uncertain here but we like you know when we see her in the future she has you know she is 
fully the Alicent that I, you know, that I saw in the book. And I think Emma Darcy's first scene is a total knockout. So not to say much more than that, but that like when I saw, you know, cause it's like, I, I love Millie Alcock. She's been great too. But it's like when, when sh- Emma showed up, I was like, Oh, okay. We're like, you know, we are, let's go guys. We're ready to go. So I, I'm pretty excited to uh, see them take over the roles. Mike, what about you? It's really bittersweet. I've loved Millie Alcock and Emily Carey. I, they've made me care about these two characters in ways I didn't think were possible. So I, I'm sad to see them go. And there's part of me that really hopes they've thought to film maybe some flashback scenes with them now that they can sprinkle in the future that might give us some more context. You know, maybe we end up seeing that wedding scene down the line someday. There's some moment from there. But we can't get to the eye stabbing until we get to the grownups. So I am excited for that. I, I, I need to see the grown up version so I can see somebody deservedly lose an eye. Oh my God, jumping off of that. Uh, wh- what's the line I'm, I'm paraphrasing where Rainier is like, I will either have my crown or Aegon's head. Oh my God, I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait. Look, it's based on a book, Fire and Blood. I want to see the fire and the blood. I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> Well, thank you both for joining me this week, Lauren. It is always a pleasure. Mike, I'm so happy you were able to join us this week for a lively discussion. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Thank you. I really really had a good time. Thank you guys for having me. When we return, we'll be switching to my interview with Fabian Frankel, who plays Sir Christian Cole. Stay tuned. How have you been? I think I I ran into you, I think, at Comic-Con during that last um, Entertainment Weekly party, but it was kind of chaotic then. Oh, yeah, for a second. Yeah. I mean, how have you been since the show has kind of come out now? Yeah, I've been good, man. I've been good. You know, I've been sort of reacclimatizing to life, I guess. After that kind of a press tour, it takes some getting used to to sort of just adapt to like life again in some weird way, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I've been having a lot of these kinds of chats with some of your castmates. And now I kind of feel bad for you because Steve Toussaint told me that the armor that you guys had to wear was super uncomfortable. And that is basically your entire costume for this show. That's the truth of it. Shout out Steve for having, you know, for kind of shedding light on the travesty that is the armor. No, no, I'm only only being facetious now. It's not that bad. I mean, it's bad. Then I think, oh, well, I wonder what it was like for real soldiers who had to actually wear armor, you know? Well, as we kind of see in like one of those episodes where Rainier is like taking off all of the different pieces, it look there's a lot to that armor. I mean, did it take kind of like a long time before each filming day to kind of suit up for that? Yeah, it was about 10 minutes. It was about 10, 15 minutes to get in and 10, 15 minutes to get out. I mean, depending on, I was I was really lucky. I had this costumer called Christian Goddard. I don't know what I'll do to convince HBO to let me have him back next year. I'd like to have him written into every contract for the rest of my career because he somehow had this magic, magic hands, man. He could get me in and out of the armor in about four minutes or something. It was insane. How many different parts are there to it? Oh, mate, uh, I've lost count. Like 12 or something. 
<laughs> my God. <laughs> what was your first reaction when you when they told you, you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of your uniform for each episode? I suppose to some extent, I was very excited about the armor. Basically, it takes an hour to start to hurt. So the first hour, you're just like, wow, I look like a knight. This is a whole thing. People might actually believe that I am one. Uh, but kind of like speaking to the armor, I mean, like one of the first scenes that we get of you is sort of this epic jousting moment and that tourney. I've heard such fun stories about filming that sequence, how it was a long shoot and everyone was kind of delirious. I also maybe heard that Patty Constantine kind of channeled a little RuPaul's Drag Race for when watching the stuntmen kind of joust for that. Oh, is that what he was saying, is it? <laughs> you've, got, you, you've kind of got to trust Patty to say something mad about everything. So I let him speak and just listen all ears intent. I mean, was that kind of the most challenging aspect, just kind of marrying that action and the sword play with like all of this heavy the armor that you have to wear yeah you know i mean i suppose like funnily enough when you're filming those kinds of scenes the armor becomes sort of the last thing you're worried about when you're faced with a sword in your face or like a horse to ride the discomfort of the armor becomes very much a secondary thing i'll say that those days make everything great because you're so excited to do those scenes because you prep them for so long and you know god i take one of them over like a scene where i'm sort of stood for two and a half hours at a time while the higher-ups have big discussions about the future of Westeros. Do you know what I mean? Do you have any scenes like that where you just kind of have to like stand around for a while? Oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the Knight of the Kingsguard. That's like what they do for, that's like their life. That's like 99% of what they do. Fortunately for me, like, you know, Ryan and Sarah were nice enough to write some scenes where I'm not just doing that. But you know, there was a lot of that, definitely. Sir Christian Cole is, I mean, he's a really interesting character for me. He's mentioned, you know, a few times in the books, but he's not as kind of clear cut laid out as some of the other characters. I mean, did this kind of give you an opportunity to put your own mark on this character in some ways? I think what was interesting for me was that I initially only got sent the first five episodes. It was only subsequent to me accepting the job and doing it that I got to read all the others. So he's, you know, very much set up as one thing. And, you know, as the show goes on, changes a great deal. That was what was exciting to me because I think he's very much set up as a very noble, well-meaning knight there to protect Rhaenyra. And I think that for those who've read the book, he isn't that by any means. When you say you initially only got the scripts for the first five episodes, do you think episode five is really where this shift kind of comes into play on the show? Yeah, I don't know how many you've gotten to see, but yeah, episode five is 100% where the shift. I mean, end of episode four, going into episode five, you know, the second that he and Rhaenyra engage in the coupling, as one would call it. That very much changes completely the dynamic of everything for him. I mean, Cole very much kind of felt like an enigma to me. Like when I was, especially like kind of in like the first couple of episodes, it was hard to kind of get a, a pulse somewhere like his allegiances lay, where his motivations were. But it sounds like you kind of had a clear cut idea of who he was, at, at least in the beginning of the show. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, and you know, I, Actually, weirdly, it's funny because the press tour, all of a sudden you're asked all these questions that you might not have asked yourself. It's I actually feel like I understand him better now off the back of the press tour than I did when I shot the show. I don't 
don't know if that makes any sense because you know you're asking yourself a number of questions but ultimately you just you're figuring things out in real time you don't know what the scene's going to play out like between Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole until you're in the scene or how a scene's going to play out between Damon and Kristen Cole until you're in it so at that point there's only so much preparation you can do and it's only now upon reflection that I'm able to really understand kind of what I was thinking it's funny it's a really weird thing it's like you write a book and then all of a sudden you get asked 500,000 questions about the book and you go oh fuck maybe that's kind of what that was you know it's kind of like going to the site it's kind of like seeing a shrink for your character that's kind of what the press tour has been and at the end of it I'm like yeah he kind of does feel like that that is what's going on so yeah that's been really interesting yeah <laughs> I've joked a couple of times that these interviews kind of feel like book club like we both read a book and then we kind of uh, yeah, come yeah, back yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also I get really interested hearing like you know you're like you'll come in and have an opinion about something that often I won't have had that thought. So like in some ways I find that like, especially the really good journalists have asked such enlightening questions that I've ended up walking away with enlightened answers for those questions in the future. So when you talk about kind of finding things in the moment or not really knowing like how things are going to play until you're actually doing them, are there kind of specific elements to this character that came to you like on the day as you were filming? A hundred percent. Loads of stuff. Because you don't know how you're going to be made to feel by another character until you're in that scene with that person and it's happening. Like, I remember when Matt and I did the joust scene and, like, I didn't know that he was going to slap my hand away and I didn't know that I was going to feel really angry about him slapping my hand away and that that would then become my impulse for asking Rhaenyra for her favor. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Like I kind of... Like, what, why is he asking the guy for the favor? Well, that's just what it says in the script, whatever. And then I basically realized in doing it, I was so fucking annoyed that Matt had refused to sh shake my hand that I then went, well, now I'm going to go ask for Rhaenyra's favor to piss him off because she's his niece. You know, it's like that. So that's what, it, what, what I mean when I say you're sort of, you're discovering what your impulses are coming from, what they're stemming from. What certain things did you discover acting opposite Millie on a lot of the sequences that you share together? I always tell her this. I think because she didn't go to drama school and because she doesn't come from the world of theater or all that stuff, there's a complete abandon that she plays with, wherein she's so fearless of what might happen that there's no, you know, I've worked with actors and I won't name any names, but certain actors who you'll have an idea and then the, the, the director will cut the end and be like, hey man, you know that the script actually says that you come in here at this moment and you're like, well, I think you really like don't understand how life works. And then, whereas Millie was like the polar opposite. You could throw her anything, any idea you had and she would roll with it. There was nothing that would be too much for her or too intricate for her or surprising to her because she just rolled with it. And there's something that I think if you come from the world of theatre, it's hard to be like that because everything is so learnt and everything is so rehearsed. And that so there was a complete lack of attachment to what the scene might be and that's what I loved about working with her and that and that's why to be honest if ever I directed I would love to have someone like you know she's the exact type of actress I would want to hire because there's just she's completely fearless. Did that approach kind of rub off on you at all kind of like as you were acting with her? Yeah well that's really how I like to that's how I like to work anyway. I remember I worked opposite an actor called Tahar Rahim. I don't know if you've ever seen A Prophet, but he's an amazing uh, French-Algerian actor. And I, I remember this was one of my first days on a film set. 
I remember he would never rehearse and he would never tell you what he was going to do before the scene. He would never want to discuss what the scene was going to be, out, be about before he did it. And I remember him once getting to set and we were about to do the scene together and he, and, he, and he asked for all these things. He'd asked for a candle and a lighter and a knife and a newspaper and all these things. And I didn't know what the fuck was going on, but it was so exciting because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember he, on my close-up, he blew the candle out. So all the smoke from the candle went into my eye and I ended up playing the whole scene with my hand covering my eye because I couldn't fucking see out of one eye. And I just remember thinking, thinking like that and it was so exciting because that is not in any way how I planned to play the scene but because he'd done that the scene became this whole other thing and it took me out of my attachment to what the scene was supposed to be and that yeah that's how I like to work very much it's interesting because some of your castmates, namely Steve and Emily, they got really deep into kind of like the backstories of their characters, even if it like never was addressed on screen. It was just kind of something that they could kind of keep in the back of their mind as they were going through the motions. It sounds like you had a, a different approach to this character. Like how deep did you get into the research of Kristen Cole for this? Unlike the Valerians, the Coles are not a house that have been written about in this world. There is no deep history that I can delve into in the books. So all I could do was use my imagination, try and understand how being the son of a steward in Blackhaven would have gotten me to be good enough at fighting, to be able to compete in these tournaments, to be able to end up at this caliber of tournament that we're in at the first episode, which I guess is probably as high a quality tournament as one could hope to, to take part in. That was all I could do. It was just create as much as I can, but there was no deep backstory. I don't have hundreds of years of ancestry that is written about by George R. R. Martin. Now I have a different relationship with George. You know, he, I t he, he texts me and we speak much more often, but you know, the time I really didn't know him. I'd never met him, but I would have loved to have gone back and retrospectively I would have actually wanted, loved to sit with him and say, what is the history of this character? You know, who, who is Kristen Cole from a narrative perspective in Fire and Blood and in the Game of Thrones universe? And I just ended up doing that myself from my own understanding of who he was and how he behaved. What kind of things do you text George about? He texts me saying he just watched an episode or he signs off on his message on G as GRRM, which I think is pretty <laughs> rock and roll. No, he just said, man, we just text. He sent me a lovely, he said, he said, uh, crazy busy, looking forward to at three on Sunday. Loved your scenes with Millie in the rough cut. You know, just really nice stuff. Like, you know, he's a lovely man. And obviously a great genius and like a massive admirer of his anyway. And just any, anyone who has that amount of creativity in their little finger, probably more than most people have in their entire bodies. It just speaks volumes of the man that the show is doing as well as it is, you know. Well, something that my colleagues and I, when we're sort of gathering for our weekly water cooler chat about House of the Dragon, something that we talk about a lot is sort of the Targaryen relationship to the small folk. And that's for me, that's what makes Kristen so interesting because he is common born, but he does operate sort of in this world of the crown. I mean, was that duality to him something that you talked about with Ryan and Miguel or was it something that you actively kind of wanted to play with in your portrayal of this character? It was both. Miguel and I had long conversations. Miguel liked, likened Kristen Cole to a thug, which I thought was so interesting. I'd never thought of him that way. And we sort of talked about his thuggishness and how he would lose his thuggishness as the show went on and he developed an understanding of the Machiavellian nature of the politic of this world. And on a personal level, I worked very closely with this woman, Penny Churns, who was a teacher at my drama school. And she and I would sit down and we would just, we, we didn't do any acting, we just read the script through together. I read the whole thing with her. She's a real mind. She's 
thinks like a historian almost and her whole process is very much about finding as much depth in this world as one possibly can and she likened the Dornish to the Irish in England in, in the mid 1900s of you know on, on doors and restaurants all over the country it said no blacks no dogs no Irish and like that's kind of how the Dornish are looked upon in this world so like that was very much something I thought about and I found it fascinating that they decided to make him Dornish. That was something I dug into a lot was that whole Dornish aspect and just rewatching the show and reading the books and seeing how the Dornish are talked about just with such sort of disdain and disregard. Yeah, I mean, jumping off of that a little bit, there are a couple of specific scenes that I'd love to discuss with you. The first is that the night that Kristen Cole has sex with Rhaenyra, I thought it was really interesting that the way it was shot, like Rhaenyra is always the one kind of in control. And this moment really felt like a moment where the Targaryen crown or a member of the Targaryen crown is kind of manipulating Kristen Cole to kind of suit their own needs, their own desires kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was I was curious how you and Millie and maybe even like the intimacy coordinators wanted to approach kind of the choreography, this dance that both of these characters kind of perform. Yeah, it was something we talked about over seven months. It was one of the first things I was very keen to talk about. We were incredibly fortunate that episode four was directed by Claire Kilner, who I think is one of the great TV directors working today. I think she's extraordinary. And the big thing for me was about it not feeling like another gratuitous sweat glistening off their back sex scene, because it's just not like that. That's just not what sex is like. And anyone who's ever had sex will tell you that it's just sex ain't that beautiful. It isn't some picturesque, amazing thing. It's awkward, especially when you're young. There's an uncomfortability that one has to sit in and there's a discovery and understanding of each other's bodies and and not to mention the practical side of the whole thing. I, I remember just saying to them, like, there's no way this armor comes off without the help. You know, knights would have squires and squires would take off their armor. For even a world quality squire, you've got 10 minutes to get the armor off. Let's say five, maybe at best. There's no way Rhaenyra and Cole are going to take that armor off in 10 seconds. So I was like, well, you have to have that in. It's important. That that's what it is. It's important that it's a struggle to get the armor off. It's heavy. How do we get the buckle off? How do we get the boots off? These are all the things I really cared about because they're in the re- they take away this sort of, to my mind, archaic sexual sex scenes that have existed for so long in television and film and make it feel real and like how it would be. And again, it was also, you know, like you said, it, it, it is led by Rhaenyra. And it was very important for me to portray what I felt was Kristen Cole's conflict of betraying his vows as a knight of the King's Guard, which mean everything to him. And, uh, and that, that felt like a struggle. And so for me, it was about the struggle in every way, the struggle to get the armor off, the struggle for him to betray his vows, the struggle. For, it's all about his struggle. That's kind of how we, I wanted to pitch it. There's a really interesting moment where I think, yeah, Rainier is taking the armor off and it's like almost like you two are kind of bowing to each other. And it almost yes. it almost kind of highlighted the real inexperience that both of these characters kind of had. It sounds like that was kind of a crucial beat in this kind of choreography. 100%. And, and, and also it needs to be incredibly different to the scene we've just seen between Rhaenyra and her uncle. 
they have to be completely different. She is being led by him completely. And obviously feelings are arising in her that no doubt she's never had before as a young woman, and then arrives back into the comfort of her own bedroom and, and is wanting and is craving to allow those feelings to percolate in her. And Kristen Cole ends up being the subject of that moment. I mean, obviously Game of Thrones sort of has a history of kind of like really displaying a lot of graphic nature on television. I mean, was there a specific moment where you realized this scene would be approached differently? Was it kind of in the moment? Was it kind of talking about it with the producers and the crew? We said it straight, Millie and I and Claire talked about it the very first day we even got to the, the scene in rehearsals. Normal people was out at that time and that, that I felt that that show did such a brilliant job at highlighting the realities of sex, especially at a young age, which these characters are. And I just remember back and forth texts, back and forth phone calls, back and forth meetings between Claire, myself and Millie and Miriam, our intimacy coordinator, but particularly me, Claire and Millie about going like, how do we make this human? How do we make this human? How do we make this human? So that was, I, I was very adamant about that. And I think that they, they both were as well. The other episode I want to talk about is this week's episode five. And this interview will come out after the episode has already aired. It felt like a big moment for Kristen. Cause like he's kind of, he seems at least in the beginning of this episode, like he's kind of not drowning, but like consumed with this kind of like schoolboy crush on Rhaenyra. And that's kind of driving a lot of his arc for like the first half of the episode. But does this kind of feel like, a crucial moment. Was this a crucial moment for this character in the overall evolution of where we kind of know that he goes later on in the show? Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, yeah, it, it's the making, it's his defining moment of his life. You know, often someone's defining moment of their life is the day their first child is born or uh, the day they get married or the day a parent passes away or whatever it is, or, you know, in this character's case, the day that he, you know, agrees to make love with Rhaenyra is the day in which his whole life changes. The second he succumbs to that desire and that happens, everything from that point on is a completely different thing. His whole world has been changed from one moment to the next from because of one act. And that act is his own doing rather than the doing of others or circumstantial doing. It, it is his own decision. He agrees to do it. He puts himself in that position. He has no one else to blame. The episode ends with <laughs> this wedding moment and weddings are always <laughs> notorious and kind of Game of Thrones lore. They're never good. <laughs> Somebody always dies. Yeah, they are never good. They are never good. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about the death of Joffrey is that, you know, whoever kind of threw the first punch between him and Kristen, that's kind of like off camera and we don't really see it as everyone's kind of rushing to the scene and the chaos of everything. I mean, do you think in this moment, Kristen really intended to kill him. Do you think it was that premeditated? No, I don't think there's anything premeditated, but I don't think Kristen Cole is a premeditated character. I don't think he works that way. I think nothing is premeditated, certainly in the first half of this show. Things might well change as life goes on, but I don't think there's anything premeditated about him. I think everything is impulsive. Everything is reactionary. He's a reactionary character. You prick him and he'll bleed. You know, he's not looking to be pricked. It's just how he is. I don't think he's searching for any form of conflict at this wedding at all. I think if anything, he wants to be as far away from this wedding as humanly possible, which is why I wanted him to stand at a certain place at the wedding away from everything. Because initially when we, we were going to shoot it, the way that the, the stand-ins and 
uh, our director had placed him was that he was kind of much more front and center in this wedding. And I remember saying, he, he can't be here. He has to be away. He has to feel that he doesn't want to be here. He has to meld into the background as much as possible. He wants to be here less than anyone at this whole wedding. It seems like everything that happens kind of from this point on is like really stemming from that wound of Rhaenyra kind of rebuffing him and saying like, no, I'm not going to kind of go away with you to Essos. Is that kind of fair to say? I don't know that it's, I don't think it's because she says she won't go away with him. I think it's the way in which she says she won't go away with him. And I think it's the fact that she chooses when she could so easily have let him go. That scene could so easily have been written and could have gone in the world, in, in real life, he asks her to run away with him. She says no. She understands why he feels this way. She's really sorry that it went down the way it did, but she can't give up her role as queen. But what she will offer him is an out. If he would like to leave the King's Guard, she will let him go accordingly. That very much could be the scenario that happens. It isn't. And that to me is very interesting. And when there's anger that brews within him about Rhaenyra, it's that she could so easily have let him go. She chose not to. She chose to keep him there. She made him sit sand through that wedding. She made him be there during all of that. So now all of a sudden, that's where the animosity builds. It's not the no that kills him. It's interesting that you said Miguel thought of Kristen Cole as a thug initially, because I didn't really think of him that way until maybe this episode where he kind of lets his anger come out. I mean, did this episode kind of like tie a lot of things together for you? Yeah, and I'm so glad, you know, it's an awful thing to say, but I'm so glad that that happens because I think that what you're doing is you are creating a polarizing view of a cat. You know, I, I get like, uh, if, if ever anyone talks to me about the character or, you know, you read messages that people write to you or notes or everything or anything that anyone writes and they're always like, oh, what a lovely character and especially people who haven't read the book and it's, ah, uh, you know, what a noble man, what a kind of, he's the only good character in this show. He's the only one who doesn't have this thing. And I fucking love that in a week's time, the audience is going to very much change at least their opinion of him. And there is a thuggishness to him that comes out that interestingly we see in the first episode, you know, he strikes Damon in the back in the first episode of the show. And I was talking about it with my mum today and my mum's like, oh, you know, it's so funny. You only really get to see his true colors in this first episode because I'm not told her what happens in the rest. She's like, but two, three and four, he's very much still in this one vein of like quite noble and respectful and all this stuff. And actually that's just not what he is, is it? One last question for you. And I know you, there's a lot of things we can't really get into at this moment in terms of the back half of this season. But it, there's a lot of interesting things that happen here. We Between the wedding and also this moment where Kristen confesses to Alicent and he is inadvertently drawn into her world. I'm curious why you think viewers should really be keeping an eye on Kristen kind of moving forward on this show. You know, I think that Kristen is in a lot of ways a fly on the wall, but without the Machiavellian nature of a character like Otto, wherein Otto is constantly planning and plotting and ears to the ground. Kristen Cole is ears to the ground, but there's no planning and plotting going on. So you have a very interesting dynamic of someone who is overhearing every conversation that is happening, be it when he's on the side of Rhaenyra or whether he's on the side of any of the other characters. He is there throughout this show, hearing things and slowly as the show goes on and, you know, long may it continue, I hope, into many more seasons, you know, for HBO and for the show, Kristen Cole, uh, I believe, will become a very integral part of the Dance of the Dragons. Well, thank you well, so much, man. Thank you so much, Nick. So lovely to speak to you again. And, um, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other 
at the bar of Comic-Con next year or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'll buy you a beer then. <laughs> good, mate. All the best. Awesome, you too. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.